Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 136th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, managed cybersecurity, and managed information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is Russia's Digital Iron Curtain. Our guest today is Eva Galperin, the Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She has spent the last 15 years working on tracking APTs, making digital security training materials for vulnerable populations, and working directly with journalists and activists all over the world. It's super to have you with us today, Eva. Thanks for having me. Even in mid-March, I read a story that quoted you, and this was the first time I had ever heard the phrase about Russia's digital iron curtain in that story, which said that Russia had banned Instagram, which affected some 90 million Russian users. Can you tell us what that was all about? Shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia started to very seriously crank up its control over social media and the internet. The Russian civil society space on the internet has been slowly closing over the last decade or so, but in the last two or three months, we've really seen it move from a sort of contested space into a fully authoritarian space. There are, at this time, very few sources of independent news media located inside of Russia or available to Russians right now. Eva, I understand that that Russia, they previously banned Facebook and restricted use of Twitter. How did that come about, and, and why did the Russian government do that? Well, the Russian government has an internet censorship body called the Raskamnadzor, and it issues a block list to all Russian ISPs and requires them to block certain domains. And that changes over time. The law in Russia is such that the Russian government can essentially decide to block whatever content it wants, and especially social media platforms because it's banned certain types of speech, including what they call sort of the the promotion of drug use, the promotion of suicide, talking about LGBTQ issues, and also calling the war in Ukraine a war. God forbid we should be told the truth. The point of these restrictions, I assume, is to drive Russians to other communication outlets which are more pro-Russian, the equivalent of Fox television, for instance. (laughs) And is it now a crime in Russia to criticize the actions in the Ukraine? It is a crime in Russia right now to call the special operation in Ukraine a war, not even to have criticism of it, to point out that it is going badly, or to say that perhaps Russia should not be doing it, but merely to point out that it is in fact a war. Talk to us a, a little bit about the messaging app Telegram. I, I know we're very familiar with it since we do you know, forensics work, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are not familiar with it. But talk to us about why that program is so popular in Russia and why is the government permitting its use? There are a lot of social media platforms 
and also end-to-end encrypted secure and insecure messaging apps in use throughout Russia and indeed outside of Russia and in the United States. We are familiar with uh, many of the more popular social media platforms such as uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and also with many of the more uh, commonly used messaging apps. WhatsApp, for example, has more than a billion users. I imagine most of your listeners have used WhatsApp at one point or another, or iMessage. If they are particularly technical, they might use Signal. These are all sort of in, in constant use, both inside and outside of Russia. But there is sort of what is referred to until recently as the Runet, which is sort of the the Russian-speaking internet, the internet of Russian apps and platforms and communication. Back in the early 2010s, that included sites like LiveJournal. It had originally started out as a U.S. company and then was purchased by a Russian owner and became a really interesting platform for civil society and discussion in Russian for, for some time until kind of the first wave of like 2012 censorship laws really came into place. It suffered sort of the same fate as uh, I would say Tumblr now after uh, Tumblr's porn ban. Only instead of banning porn, what they banned was essentially political speech. There are platforms like that. There is also a Russian version of Facebook called Vkontakte, which looks almost exactly like Facebook and uh, whose feature list and look is copied almost verbatim from Facebook. There's a site called Anaklasniki, which essentially does the same thing. It is sort of the equivalent of classmates. There is, in addition to all of that, there is sort of combined social media platform slash messaging app called Telegram. And the way that Telegram works in this particularly interesting hybrid way is that uh, Telegram has channels, and those channels are not really limited in terms of their size. So there are sometimes very large channels with hundreds and thousands of people subscribed to them, which are essentially used in much the same way as Twitter. Somebody just you know puts out their content on, the, on this channel and people talk to each other on the channel. There are also groups, which tend to be smaller. People frequently communicate in private groups, groups that are you know sort of not listed and also not, uh, not joinable by people who do not have a specific uh, invitation to join the group. And people have one-to-one communications, which is sort of the equivalent of your standard messaging app, like WhatsApp. However, Telegram is much like the social media platforms in that all of the communications over these platforms are encrypted in transit, which is the equivalent of when you go to Facebook and you look up at the top of, uh, of your browser and you see the URL and it starts with the letters HTTPS. The S at the end of this word or this uh, phrase, this is a hypertext transfer protocol, and the S stands for secure. And what this S means is that uh, the stuff that you type into Facebook is visible to Facebook, but is not visible to everybody that uh, controls the networks between you and Facebook. For example, the network administrator on your local network, 
the person who runs your local ISP. They can see that you are going to Facebook, but they can't see what you're doing there. The internet used to not be encrypted, and it used to be possible to intercept that kind of content all the time. It was a very serious privacy and security problem that EFF spent many years working to solve. So good news there. There's certain types of spying that uh, telegram communications are secure against. However, most of the communications on Telegram are not end-to-end encrypted, which is usually what we think of when we say that something is encrypted online these days, especially when we talk about messengers. For example, your communications in WhatsApp are end-to-end encrypted under all circumstances. Your messages on Signal are end-to-end encrypted under all circumstances. And what end-to-end encryption means is that when you communicate with someone else, the communication is only visible to you and to the person that you are talking to. And everybody who is in the middle, including the people running the platform that you're using, cannot see what you are saying and therefore cannot say, turn it over to a government. And one of the problems with Telegram is that the communications are encrypted in transit, but they are not end-to-end encrypted. And so in the end, you need to trust Telegram with the contents of your communications, unless there is one circumstance under which you could turn on end-to-end encrypted communications in Telegram, and it is in one-to-one communications where you specifically have turned on secret chat, which is a very, very small subset of communications on Telegram. And that means that a lot of anti-war organizing, a lot of information about what is happening in Ukraine being made available to Russians, all of that is on Telegram. Telegram knows who is seeing what for the most part, which puts them in a very sensitive position. Now, Telegram has a long history of standing up to the Russian government. The owner of Telegram is a guy named Pavel Durov, who also started the Facebook ripoff of Kontakte. And uh, when he was essentially pushed out by Putin's oligarchs and forced to sell the company, he fled or was allowed to leave Russia and started Telegram. However, even though he has a history of of standing up to Putin, the fact that you need to trust him in order to have these communications is extremely problematic because the technology exists to make that trust unnecessary, and he has not implemented it, and I find that extremely suspicious. Furthermore, even if you trust Pavel Durov personally, you say this guy has stood up to Putin, therefore he would uh, surely not stab Russians in the back. You also have to trust everybody else who works at the company and also every hacker who could possibly break into the company. That's not a risk that I would take if I was a Russian right now. I can believe that. And that was truly an encyclopedic answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. I I provided the whole answer. (laughs) No, but it was great. I mean, I was just riveted. That was a terrific explanation and and far more than I knew before. I guess to summarize that, uh, Eva, you kind of say that there's a potential of of a wiretap, if you will, in that stream. Right? When you use Telegram. Okay. That I think our listeners can understand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, 
the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Russia's Digital Iron Curtain. Our guest today is Eva Galperin, the Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. She has spent the last 15 years working on tracking APTs, making digital security training materials for vulnerable populations, and working directly with journalists and activists all over the world. So, Eva, I'm still trying to absorb everything you said in answer to the last question, but let me just start a new train here. Please tell us what exactly is VK, because you were quoted as saying you can assume that anything that happens on VK is absolutely not safe from the Kremlin. So tell us why that is. VK is short for Vkontakte, which I had been talking about earlier as sort of the Facebook clone that is based in Russia. And the reason why Russians can assume that the Russian government has full uh, full access to everything which is happening on Vkontakte is that Vkontakte is based in Russia and therefore is not only required to turn over any information that the Russian government asks for, but is also vulnerable to certain kinds of pressures that would simply not be possible if Kontakte was not located inside of Russia. Are there ways to make VK or, or Telegram more secure to use? The only way to use Telegram securely is uh, for one-on-one chats with secret chat turned on. And even then, Telegram has information about who you are and who you're talking to. And you can draw a lot of conclusions about a conversation without ever actually seeing the content of the communications. This is what is known as metadata, all of the data about the data. So I would be very careful when using Telegram. As for Kontakte, I would not trust anything that happens there. <laughs> I think we heard that loud and clear. <laughs> uh, reports from mid-March, Eva, said that Russia is planning to further centralize control over the country's internet access with its uh, sovereign internet project, Runet, which is what you referred to before. And as I understand it, and I understand very little of it because John is the technologist and I am the lawyer, but this would effectively relocate key internet if infrastructure, including parts of the domain name system, otherwise known as DNS, to servers on Russian soil. Could you please help us understand what that means and why it's so significant? So for more than a decade, the Russian government has been working to centralize its control over the Russian internet. And their model has been China this entire time. What they're trying to do is they are trying to to duplicate the Great Firewall of China. Part of that control can only be possible if they control DNS, if they have a wide capability for filtering communications, for spying on communications, for intercepting communications, for turning communications off, 
at will and also for compelling companies to hand over data. That's really what they've been working for all of this time. And what we've really seen in the last few months is we've seen all of these efforts really ramp up. Well, that we certainly have. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, Eva, I want to get a little bit into the weeds here, but since as Sharon said, I'm the technologist here. I know Russia's, they've made some moves to kind of bypass the, the sanctions by creating their own certificate authority and the, you know, the, the entities that actually issues those digital certificates to secure the web traffic. I see that as kind of problematic um, without, I'm not going to get into the whole TLS, you know, pinning issue and, and all that stuff, but essentially making it more vulnerable to man in the middle attacks. But can you talk a little bit about this whole thing of, of Russia creating their own certificate authority, what that might mean, what the impacts could be around all that? Well, first, it's probably worth pointing out that when I was talking earlier about having your communications encrypted in transit, the way that that is done is uh, is over TLS, and it depends on certificates which are issued by certificate authorities. So there are a bunch of different organizations that issue these certificates that show that you know your your data is encrypted and it is trusted by you know these organizations and the Russians have essentially decided to issue their own certificate, which they can easily backdoor, which would allow them to see all of the traffic, which is encrypted in transit. This is not the first attempt by a government to issue its own certificate authority that it controls in order to allow it to spy on internet traffic, which would otherwise be encrypted within its borders. In fact, even countries like Kazakhstan have gone so far as to require its citizens to install a certificate issued by its own authority if they wanted to use any of the Kazakh government websites, which was on one hand kind of laughable, but on the other hand uh, surprisingly effective in some cases. So this is, this is not the first time. We've also seen governments seek to undermine existing authorities, such as the Diginotar scandal, I think back in like 2014 or 2015, where I think there was, was it the Dutch government? I can't remember off the top of my head. This was a big European scandal with a certificate authority that was behaving in an untrustworthy way on behalf of a government. So this is not the first time that we've seen this. This is absolutely expected behavior. No one is surprised, but everyone is very disappointed. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, Accept and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? 
InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Russia's Digital Iron Curtain. And our guest today is Eva Galperin, the Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. All that we've been talking about, Eva, is causing experts to worry what precedence this might set for the internet and the internet everywhere. If a country can simply bow out of the global network and funnel people into siloed services and standards during times of conflict, it doesn't seem to me to bode well for the future of a neutral and decentralized internet. What are your thoughts about this? I think that this is nothing new. Again, China has essentially had its great firewall up for decades and has very effectively maintained control of its own internet. Iran has been trying to build up a separate internet for many years. And Russia, again, has very consciously modeled its efforts on China from the very beginning. So this is a, a very long process. The only reason why I have been less concerned about the balkanization of the internet, I would say as recently as 10 years ago, is it turned out that balkanizing your internet is hard and requires a lot of technical infrastructure. But it also turns out that Russia has been building that technical infrastructure out in the form of SORM-2 for the last decade. So we had a lot of warning about exactly what it was doing and exactly how they were doing it and who they were modeling it after and what their goals were. Mind you, a balkanized internet is not a better internet. It is an internet that makes it harder for people to communicate with one another across borders and uh, really takes away many of the great advantages of a free and open society, which is precisely what makes it uh, so incredibly appealing to authoritarians everywhere. Well, Eva, I could sit here and talk with you all afternoon long, but we don't have enough time for all that. So I'm going I'm to boil down to, say, four questions at the end here for you. Is there any way that we can get trustworthy information into Russia? And is that something the EFF is working on? And what about the government? you know, as well. And has this really become another kind of a, a cyber war? There are definitely ways in which Russians can continue to uh, see websites and services that exist outside of Russia or that have been blocked by the Russian government. I recommend the use of Tor. Tor is a censorship circumvention technology that was built specifically for this very purpose. It is really quite good for it. The Tor website has, of course, been blocked at the DNS level or at the domain for some time in Russia, but many mirrors are up and Tor is widely used inside of Russia in order to get around censorship circumvention. VPNs are also used to get around censorship circumvention, even the VPNs that have been uh, that have been banned or blocked. It is sometimes difficult to purchase a new VPN right now in, in Russia. And part of the reason for that is the sanctions make it very hard to buy things which exist abroad and also to download paid apps right now, especially since they can't get to the Apple Play Store. So there, there are definitely some obstacles there. 
So information is is still getting out and in. So censorship circumvention technology is uh, is extremely robust, and it's something organizations have been working on for a very long time. This is this is not a new problem. As for cyber war, we have definitely seen an uptick in uh, cyber attacks by known Russian actors, by actors that are related to or have been known to work with the Russian government, and by actors that are affiliated with Russia's allies, such as Belarus. We have seen you know, sort of cyber espionage, but we have also seen sort of more aggressive attacks, such as wipers, where ransomware is installed remotely on a device using malware, and then it just remotely wipes everything, which is, uh, which is on the computer. And they're not particularly interested in ever picking up a ransom. So that's a very common thing that we're seeing a, a spike in right now. And it's very important for people who are running critical infrastructure to be aware of this kind of attack and to be particularly alert. Well, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today, Eva. I, I feel like I have digested more, more than I could. I will work at, again, taking a stab at listening to this again, just to try to absorb everything that you taught me that I didn't know. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will feel exactly the same way. And I appreciate how valuable your time is. So thank you for coming and joining us as a guest. Thank you so much for having me. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple podcast. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.